0: Your call is in a queue, it will be answered as soon as possible. Your call is in a queue, it will be answered as soon as possible. Your call is in... When you hear those words endlessly repeated, what is your reaction? Well, if you're anything like me, you want to take the handset and hurl it at the wall, (laughs) ripping out the telephone cord at the same time, (coughs) waiting, waiting. It's a very frustrating experience, but it's part of being human. Whether it's waiting at the queue at the, at the post office, or in a traffic jam on the M23 or the M25, even worse, the biggest car park in Europe. Well, today is the fourth Sunday in Advent. It's almost Christmas. The waiting is nearly over. The children are approaching their peak, of frenzy and excitement, and the adults are just trying to hang on to their sanity. Very soon, the festivities will begin. I want to think this morning about waiting, and I want to take those words from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 that Ray just read to us. And um, if you have them open in front of you, it will really help. Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I want to give you three kinds of waiting this morning. Waiting pointlessly. Waiting patiently. And waiting for a promise that will be fulfilled. So first of all, waiting pointlessly. What's pointless about waiting in this particular context? wonder if you've ever said, what on earth is the world coming to? I dare say you have. I've said it plenty of times. Something dreadful happens, and we want to know why God doesn't intervene. You know, I want to ask you this morning to turn that question around, and instead of asking, what is the world coming to? Ask, what has come to the world. What has come to the world? Very often we wonder why God doesn't intervene. Why doesn't he intervene? Because, dear friends, he already has. Verse 11 says it, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. There is a past tense in that verse. It's something that's already happened. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's pointless waiting for God to intervene because he already has. I think it's true to say that an Orthodox Jew will leave, when he builds a house, will leave one brick out of the structure. Obviously not in a crucial place. But he leaves one brick out of the structure because As far as he is concerned, the Messiah has not yet come. Isn't that a tragedy? It's like waiting for a train that's gone. Standing on the station, waiting for a train that will never come, because it's already gone. God has already intervened. The grace of God that brings salvation has already appeared to all men. These four candles here speak of the moment the turning point of human history, when God entered humanity. In John chapter 1, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt for a while amongst us. And what it really means is he pitched his tent amongst us. He came to live amongst us. God is with us, Emmanuel. And because of that, human history and human lives have been changed forever. It's very natural, isn't it, when someone has hurt you to want to uh, strike back? Of course it is. And maybe the descendants of African slaves who were taken from their homes to work in slave plantations, and maybe... African Americans, maybe black people who have come to this country, have had a, a very, very raw deal over the years, maybe apart perhaps from the Jewish people. They have suffered from discrimination and from oppression. Well, Martin Luther King, who above all was a champion of The Rights of Black People, wrote this in a book called Strength to Love. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence in a descending spiral of destruction. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. Now, that message ran all the way through Jesus' life until he crowned it with his own sacrifice on Calvary and God vindicated him in the empty tomb. But you see, that message has to be grasped. It has to be lived out. We have to realize that the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared. In every society where the Christian gospel has been lived out, not just put in a cupboard and forgotten somewhere, but lived out, tremendous changes have taken place. When the Christian faith was was beginning to have a tremendous influence in the Roman Empire, all kinds of hideous things began to melt away. For instance, gladiatorial combat to the death. That was acceptable before the Christian gospel began to be accepted and took root in in uh, Roman society, and the opposite is true as well. Communism, National Socialism, they're both atheistic political philosophies. And uh, National Socialism not only denied the existence of God, but the value of human beings themselves. Field Marshal von Paulus, when he realized that Reinforcements would never arrive at Stalingrad. Asked Hitler if he could have permission to surrender. And that permission was denied. And as a result, hundreds of thousands of men were killed and taken prisoner. And hundreds of thousands of those prisoners died. Hitler's reaction? He said this. He said, the individual is nothing. The nation is nothing. Everything. That appalling denial of the value, of the preciousness of human life, lies at the root of atheistic philosophy. And it's the very antithesis of what Jesus came to show. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. But we've got to grasp it, we've got to realise it, we've got to live it, haven't we? Okay. So much for waiting pointlessly. What about waiting patiently? Verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I was down in Brighton on Friday. And you know there are a whole number of nightclubs in Brighton. I've never frequented any of them, actually, just to reassure you. But I think think that there are a whole number of nightclubs in Brighton, and I dare say in Brighton, um, late on a Friday or a Saturday night, there would be a tremendous number of people enjoying themselves, really having an absolutely wonderful time living the very antithesis of, of that. What does it say? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age. Now supposing, supposing we went down to Brighton and, and stood at the uh, nightclub entrance and said, "Now you've got to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives." what do you think? What kind of response would we get? And what would be our reaction? Would we say? Well, you make the choice, and if you uh, make the choice of living an ungodly life, you take the consequences. Shall we be like the Pharisee who said, Oh, thank God I'm not like other men? I tithe everything I, I own, and, and, and I'm not like that dirty little tax collector over there. Shall we take that attitude? What is the church? Is it an ark, or is it a lifeboat? That's the question we've got to answer. Is it an ark in which we can take refuge from the storms of life, or is it a lifeboat that goes round rescuing the people who are drowning in the sea? William Booth said, go for souls and go for the worst. Yes, of course, our agenda is to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We've got to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Yes, but it's not a stick to beat people with. It's an offer we can make—a life-transforming choice. When folk at last come to see that self-indulgence is such a cruel disappointment, and you know, my, my heart breaks for so many people, especially mothers at Christmas time, because they they go shopping, they they pile their trolleys high with all the things that are going to make their families absolutely have a wonderful Christmas. Have you have you noticed the, uh, the trailer for Lark Rise to Candleford this evening? You notice that trailer? It's going to be the best Christmas ever. Oh, we're going to have a wonderful time. We're going to, it's going to just be tremendous. There are so many people who are looking forward to the best Christmas ever, and because it's Based upon self-indulgence, it's going to be the worst Christmas ever. Too much time locked up with family and too much drink. That won't be our um, agenda, by the way. (laughs) Let me make a confession. When I was uh, young, I grew up in a fairly self-indulgent family. Um, Christmas for us was for the family. I I can't really remember ever having a guest on on Christmas Day. And in total contrast, my wife's family had entertained guests at Christmas, from German prisoners of war back in the 1940s to battered wives and their children in the 1960s. And from the very first Christmas Jenny and I were married, we always had open house at Christmas Day. And to be honest, I found it difficult at first, because... It wasn't the kind of Christmas that I celebrated, as a child and as a young person. But I've come to love it now. I've come to love it. And if we had no guests on Christmas Day, it would be a profound disappointment. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, not because that's how righteous people live, but because that's God's way of liberation, that's the way to have the best Christmas ever. And so we wait for a promise, verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem, redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you ever wonder when, or dare I say if, he will appear? I suppose we all do sometimes. We wouldn't be human if we didn't. We wouldn't be human if we didn't sometimes get disillusioned when wickedness seems to win and goodness appears to lose. And that's when we have to go back to Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his Word, I put my hope. In his word, I put my hope. Our hope is not going to be disappointed. It's not resting on what human beings can and can't do. We place our hope in God's word, in the unchanging guarantee that he will keep his promise. And above all the pain of the world, the daily carnage in Afghanistan, the grinding agony of The conflict in Israel and Palestine and the tragedy of Zimbabwe. Beyond it all, there stands the assurance that God's purpose will be fulfilled. We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I said it last Sunday, and I'll say it again. God never begins something he doesn't intend to finish. In a few days' time, we shall be celebrating the birth of a baby. But that's only part of the story, isn't it? Because when that baby grew to a man, when he triumphed over sin and death, he made a promise. I'm going away, but I will come back to you. Men of Galilee, why you stand there gazing into heaven, this same Jesus, whom you have seen go into heaven, will come in like manner. He won't break his promise. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6 and following. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed For his appearing. Do you long for his appearing? Oh yes we do. Yes Lord. And as Adrian. Opened the service. With that wonderful prayer. Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. And one day he will. He will never ever. Break his promise. And I believe that's something. Worth waiting for. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we can trust you to keep your promise. But while we're waiting, help us to fulfill that commission that we've been singing about. To take your good news to every creature. To baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To make disciples of all nations. To go for souls, and if necessary, to go for the worst. Help us to do that, Lord. Lord.